Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out more about our organization at action22.org. Now, here is your host, Sarah Blackhurst. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Making Action Happen. Uh, We are... Action 22, and we have a great show for you today. We have uh, Dave Young, who is the Colorado State Treasurer, and he is going to talk to us a little bit more about the bill that he's been working on, the Climber Bill, uh, that got passed this last session, and which is really a wonderful way that he is helping businesses in Colorado. Um, and then we're going to hear a little bit later on from Jeff Shaw, who is the president and CEO of PEDCO, which is the economic development group here in Pueblo, Colorado. And we're going to talk a little bit more about a regional approach to economic development. So Dave has been working on this for a little bit. He is Again, one of the nicest guys in politics that you'll ever meet. And for those listeners who are not familiar or don't know, Dave Young is the treasurer. Uh, he's been in a lot of other roles as well. He has a former state legislator, um, but he's an educator by trade. And when you hear him talk, you're going to hear a lot of that. But there's been a lot of fallout economically, obviously, since COVID. Um, and he knows where the money is and comes from for the state and he knows what businesses need and that sort of thing. So he called me up several months ago with this idea of the climber bill and he started talking about it and we've talked about it on previous podcasts, but I, can you back up a little bit and give us a little bit of a history of, of how you came uh, to, to land um, where the climber bill is exactly what it is, who all you have involved in this. This has been a huge effort on your part. We really want to congratulate you for that. But um, will you talk a little bit more about that? I'd be happy to, Sarah. And, and thanks so much for inviting me to come on the show today. Brian, it's good to see you again. And I really appreciated the time that I had down in Pueblo at the at the annual meeting. It was fun to present to everybody. Um, you know, when the, the uh, health crisis hit with the pandemic, and we began to realize pretty quickly that there was going to be major economic fallout. The governor put together a council, uh, and I always get the council name wrong. Let's see if I can hit it this time. Uh, it's uh, for uh, economic stabilization and growth, Colorado economic stabilization and growth. I probably got it wrong again, but uh, you can get the gist of what it's about. Um, he has Federico Pena to chair that, and they immediately formed. Uh, several subcommittees, and one of them was the Financial Services Subcommittee. He asked, uh, Frederico asked, and the governor asked for Blair Richardson and Phil Kalin to co-chair that subcommittee. And we brought together many, many professionals from the Financial Services Subcommittee and began to think about first how to stabilize our economy, because as as you alluded to, and as we all well know now, um, in February and March, uh, things were really tumultuous, and there's still a lot of uncertainty. Uh, but we we knew we needed to do some things right away that were going to help. And then we also knew that we were going to have some long-term things that we were going to need to work on to, once we had stabilization, to grow our economy back again. So one of the first big activities that we engaged in was around the Paycheck Protection Program. 
and we began to work with lenders across the state. Uh, you'll recall that the Small Business Administration and the U.S. Treasury had a couple of tranches of this, but the first one went out early on, and it was uh, $350 billion of uh, loans to small businesses across the country, and uh, it was designed to really protect the paychecks of their employees. A large amount of those loans uh, had to be dedicated to that. There were other things that they could spend the money on, and if they did, there were provisions for forgiveness, but you know, this was a two-week project to move out $350 billion of, of capital a huge amount of money. I, just FYI, in the previous year, the SBA under this program had put out 20, I believe 28 billion in the entire year. So they were putting out more than 10 times that amount in a very short time span, two weeks. And frankly, we began to have conversations with lenders across the state, whether they be affiliated with the Colorado uh, Bankers Association or the independent, uh, independent Bankers of Colorado or the Rocky Mountain States Credit Union, um, they were all struggling trying to find the guidance from Treasury and from the Small Business Administration and figure out how to uh, move this money into the small business community. You know, in Colorado, we have... Um, a larger share of our economy comes from small business than what you might see in other states. So we flagged this as, as a subcommittee as a really important endeavor. So um, we worked on that and, you know, if we want to go back and um, talk about that at some other point, you know, we can, because I think there's been a lot written of the pros and the cons of that effort, but we knew we needed to move the money quickly. But as we were, as a subcommittee, having this conversation, and particularly Blair Richardson began to champion this idea of the fact that uh, sometime before the end of uh, 2020, um, after the Paycheck Protection Program had kind of run its course, there was going to be a real need for additional lending. And maybe not as um, tightly constrained, as narrow you know, focus just on, on protecting paychecks, but really meeting the, the real needs of a wide range of small businesses. And, um, and that it needed to be less top-down and more community-based or, you know, I, I think the word grassroots is overused a little bit, but I think if you say if it's, it's community-based, it needed to, be count, it needed to be statewide, couldn't be focused on certain uh, geographic areas like just the front range or whatever we needed to make sure we were paying attention to to everybody and I, I think the belief was that the, as we began to get more reports from uh, CBA, IBC and, and the Credit Union Association about who was actually getting those loans and then we started getting SBA a information about Paycheck Protection Program we began to see big gaps in there and we began to realize okay these are the spaces that perhaps we could we could fill with that. Uh, in parallel, and I, I won't go, in, go into great depth, but uh, another subcommittee uh, on, um, on small businesses actually began to work on the Energize uh, Colorado Gap uh, program as well, which has already been launched. That's using CARES Act money uh, primarily for funding. And uh, they've already launched, but we're kind of maybe the second wave. And we, we haven't launched yet, but we're uh, heavy into the work of developing this small business loan program. And, and Blair's idea was that it would be a $250 million loan program. And that's a sizable amount of money. We know it's not enough to meet all the needs of small businesses across the state of Colorado that are still grappling with how to um, 
to recover coming out of this financial crisis, but it's certainly a big step in the right direction. So um, the first thing we needed to do was actually figure out exactly what this program would look like, um, determine if we needed to have statutory authority to do that. If so, craft a bill, go through the whole legislative process, get the bill passed. And we actually, at the point that I contacted you, Sarah, um, to talk more about it, we had gotten to that point where we had a had a pretty good idea how this should look, uh, at least at a high level, and bill language that was um, being introduced. And so, as you know, that last legislative session was pretty chaotic. They actually took a timeout in the middle of it, and they had to redo the entire state's budget, which was unbelievable work in a short period of time, again, because of the financial crisis. And um, while everybody was focusing on those things, we said, yeah, we've got to figure out what to do with the immediate impact of this financial crisis. But we began to work with leadership and with uh, advocacy organizations like Action 22 across the state to say we can't just be focused on how to cut the budget. We also have to be focused on how do we recover the economy? Because if we can do that, we may not have to cut the budget at the state level for as many years going forward as, as we might if we paid no attention to it. So this whole idea of recovery began uh, to get some some legs, and we began to get some real traction with leadership in both chambers, and um, and the governor's office certainly was fully on board with it. Um, we came up with a language, and amazingly, got the bill through. We got we had great sponsors, got the bill through, um, had actually unanimous support in the in the state senate for the bill, and and pretty good bipartisan support generally. So, um, which is almost unheard of. Well, I don't, I don't know if that's unheard of, but I, I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's difficult when there's so many competing interests um, for funding and for policy decisions, particularly in the middle of the chaos that we saw over the last, uh, you know, 10 months or so, it's, it can be really difficult. So as it, I was pleased to see that it came together. So I don't, is that the kind of history you were looking for? Yeah, no, that we, is. I think that is. Um, before you um, explain the funding mechanism for how you're going to come up with the $250 million, um, will you give us a, a quick example of the gaps that you were talking about? Give some specific examples of some of those gaps that you were seeing um, in the Triple P program um, and how you are building this to fill those gaps. Well, I, I think that there were actually just businesses that um, were not banked, uh, didn't really have a strong banking relationship. And, uh, you know, when challenged in such a short period of time under the PPP program, lenders tended to default to their existing customers. And then uh, others that were searching for a lender that would be involved, um, you know, might say, well, listen, we're going to have to go through a lot of due diligence with you before we bring you on as a customer. And given the timeline and the stress that we have of of moving this money, uh, we're not sure we have the time to be able to do all that work and still get the the, the money out the door. Right. Uh, not blaming anybody. I mean, that was just the the uh, the immediate response that banks had to um, engage in. I also think, and the governor and I actually uh, wrote a letter to the U.S. Treasury and to the SBA suggesting several changes they could make to the PPP program along the way. Uh, I don't think that uh, banks were incentivized through the fee structure uh, to actually tend to the smallest of businesses through the PPP program. 
I'm not blaming them. I mean, you, they're making uh, enough money to be sustainable as a business themselves. Banks are <laughs> through the fees. And if the fee structure incents them to de- deal with larger businesses, the larger of the small businesses, you know, we're talking about 500 or employees, 100 to 500 or whatever, um, you know, that it's it makes sense or it's just kind of common sense that they would attend to that existing customers that the fee structure supports them uh, getting the work done and then the smaller businesses were were left without um that kind of service and so this this is the kind of white space that I'm talking about that we wanted to fill 250 million is not going to be enough to to fill all of that um but you know what's the beauty about this is it's, it really the money goes out the door in a series of tranches and we get a chance to actually get good information back at, from street level about how things are working, make adjustments to our program, and build the case. If there's a need for more, we can do that. So I, I, I do think that it, there's a lot of features of this that are really more community-based, um, really fundamentally talking about the real users of this program. And it's not the banks. It's the businesses right. <laughs> that need this money that are going to drive the direction that it ultimately uh, uh, takes, takes form as, as we get deeper into the, the different tranches and maybe uh, even further out past the, the limits of this particular bill. So if this was really um, sort of the gaps that, that were left by the um, triple P loans. So how do you, um, how do you specifically fill those gaps? If that was the problem, um, what do you do with lenders now that are trying to do this program? Um, so I guess that's my first question. And then I'm going to ask if there's any other states that are doing this. So start with, because this certainly wasn't a Colorado issue. This was across the nation that we right. saw this right. as a problem. But um, you you built this specifically for Colorado. Um, so if you, if you couldn't get a triple P loan, how do you get um, a climber loan? Well, and they may have gotten a triple P loan. Um, they may, you know, have utilized that already, maybe actually applied for the forgiveness. And there's still other issues besides payroll that they're grappling with. So I think about a, uh, a restaurant, let's say, that had good uh, cash flow, you know, positive cash flow for two years before COVID and, um, you know, good debt ratio, one-to-one debt ratio or better. And, um, and, you know, then they had to shut down. And we knew a lot of restaurants um, aren't necessarily shuttered, but they closed down pretty substantially. Maybe they've got a very small, um, you know, customers come pick up kind of service that's going on. Maybe they were able to expand a little bit out into open air, but, you know, it, they really had to clamp down. And, uh, you know, I think about them. I think about other businesses that just basically shut down to wait to see you know, what would happen to their customer base. And um, in the case of, uh, of a restaurant, you know, they, uh, they had to do away with the existing inventory when they shut down because food only keeps for so long. And then when you turn around and want to start back up again, you've got to restock your inventory. Right. And that's something that's not part of the PPP program, but it's certainly part of the business model for anybody trying to do a restart. And you can apply that in various degrees to any other business as they begin to think about what is life going to be like co- uh, uh, post-COVID? How are we going to operate? And, and many businesses are struggling trying to figure that out. So 
the PPP program was focused on payroll, but there are a lot of other issues that businesses have to contend with in order to make sure their business model works. Um, I don't know if you've done a, a show with Senator Bennett on the restart program, but I mean, I, I think his um, effort at the federal level in the U.S. Senate to come up with a better loan program that was supplementary to uh, the PPP program and fill gaps uh, that way certainly was an effort to to address the same kinds of things. We're just going at it a very street level way instead of uh, from a top down way in um, in the uh, the way the U.S. Senate is looking at, way Senator Bennett is looking at it. So, um, you know, I and I I may have been missing the rest of that question. Got a little distracted there. Um, <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, so I I was just oh, wondering and sending about- lenders and sending lenders. Right. Is that what you're asking about? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, lenders are really the key to this because um, you know we we really want to incentivize our lenders to uh, to do these loans. Um, you know, what has really been the talking point uh, is the fact that in the last downturn, the Great Recession, uh, there was the same kind of uncertainty, maybe not as great as we have now even, but there was a lot of uncertainty in the Great Recession. And I believe that there were lenders that just um, uh, rightfully so maybe sat on capital that could have been lent, but they, they were there was a lot of uncertainty and they just said, but we don't want to take too big a risk with this capital. And, um, you know, there's prevailing opinions about that. Certainly, you don't want to put out money that's just a sure loss. But at the same time, taking some risk is, uh, and is what moves the recovery forward. And maybe we would have recovered more quickly from the Great Recession had there been a little bit more incentive to move um, some of the, the money that the, the lenders were sitting on. So uh, when we started to talk about um, this model, uh, for Climber, we were talking about how do we incent banks to take a little bit more risk um, than they normally would in a, in a crisis like this. And, um, you know, we don't want them to take undue risk, but maybe they, they were, you know, 5% away from thinking that it was a good bet and they just couldn't bridge the gap that, right. you know, 5 or 10% of risk couldn't make the leap. Well, Climber can step in and say, look, we're going to provide some first loss money, we're going to provide uh, a little bit more ability um, for you to take a little bit more risk than normally you would, because uh, we're going to present some tools to you through the climber program that would help you mitigate some of that risk. And, um, and as a result, maybe stimulate our economy more quickly than we saw in the last recession and get it back into a, a road for recovery. So you're going to forgive my ignorance with this question, but what I've wondered from the very beginning with um, the triple P loans um, and with this um, idea of, of how this these funds were dispersed, if they were the bank's funds or if they were the lender's funds, I can understand them being so careful with them. But the truth of the matter was that um, they were getting paid to disperse the funds, right? I mean, I again, you'll have to forgive. I don't understand the financial market enough but I thought that that was a really weird thing that they would be sort of making those decisions when it wasn't their money to begin with. You're talking about PPP. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, and again, um, I think when you don't really have any other vehicle uh, to utilize, certainly the banking lending system, if you're trying to get money 
to to people is a, a, a first choice. I mean, that's what um, what people would look for. Um, if you had the gift of time and you had two or three years to develop some kind of other uh, vehicle, some other system to get money to businesses and uh, could really gnash teeth over the terms of loans and develop all this on your own, maybe you could, uh, you know, given enough time, get that done. But none of us thought we had the gift of time in this crisis. We right. knew that we were going to have to act quickly and that, uh, you know, it was clear that uh, businesses would begin to shutter pretty quickly if we if we didn't act quickly with the PPP program. So, so basically, uh, not, they, a, not a bad default to go with the lenders. Right. You know? So basically, they were they just went with the process that they had in place, and that was all they really had to go to because right. the Treasury didn't have they they'd never done anything like this before. So the Treasury did not really have um, a mechanism to go with. So they went with the lenders, and and that was kind of what sort of the problem was. Well, and I, I think they have some smaller vehicles that they've used um, in the past, but nothing of this of this enormity. I mean, this was just as I I did the back of the napkin math on this, and the SBA and the Treasury went from this twenty eight billion in uh, in twenty nineteen uh, they covered the entire year, all fifty two weeks. Uh, right. to uh, uh, amount of money over 10 times that, $350 billion that was going out in the course of two weeks. And I calculated the math. That was a 14,000% increase in workload. They did not have the people to do it. They didn't have the people to do it. And even the banks were challenged. I mean, you, you hear the stories from the banks and you had people that went for two weeks without sleep. I mean, the lights were on 24-7. They're trying to crank these things as fast as they can, knowing the, the dilemma that everybody was in. Um, but they were much better equipped to do that than the SBA or the U.S. Treasury was. Right. To. So I, I think that's why they, they went that pathway. And, and you know, I mean, I, I again, I, we could go down and have a whole segment, invite Don Childers on and uh, Mike Van Nordstrom and Tim Doerr to come on and talk about their experience representing their different en entities, uh, voicing the concerns they had and how well it worked and what changes they would have made to the PPP program. Uh, the subcommittee spent a, an enormous amount of time working with all three of those advocacy groups, uh, trying to help bridge the gap to the SBA and the U.S. Treasury to make sure that they had the kind of guidance coming from the federal level to, to really operate with some level of certainty. And uh, there were times where it came through and there were times where it didn't. And that just happens when there's that kind of chaos in the, in the system. Let's do that after the election. I think it would be really um, great, especially as decisions are getting made about next steps after the election, I think it would be really productive to have that conversation at least um, on the record or on a, on a show to have that with them. Right. Um, we, I, if I just, just, I know you want to move on to a question there. I, mean, oh, no, I just no, think ahead, it's a great, ahead. great idea. And, and, and the reason I think it's a great, great idea, because we know that there's going to be other economic uh, crises that are going to occur in the future. And as you heard me to allude to, heard me allude to, uh, we based a lot of our um, thinking about some of this work that we did as a subcommittee based on what happened in previous recessions. Right. So we not only looked back to the Great Recession, but other recessions before that and said, what do we want to do differently now to ensure we get a better outcome than we saw in those previous recessions? And I think that kind of postmortem on uh, the PPP program is, is 
perfect because at a time where everybody maybe is, we're coming out of a recession and, and um, you know, we're a little bit more relaxed, less stressed, if that's going to be possible in this new environment, uh, right. you can sit down and actually pick it apart and ha actually have kind of the pieces analyzed and ready. Should we have to act rapidly again, at least we have something to serve to help us guide future program. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I have, I have a question and, and, you know, there's, as we're, everybody's watching the numbers um, of COVID go up and, and there's some concerns um, about additional shutdowns. Did the climber program, um, did you guys put in any kind of contingency um, into that for additional shutdowns or how does that work? I'm sure you guys had to have thought that when you guys started this, putting this together. Well, and I, you know, I, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's always going to be the reality. I think everybody realizes that this is a, um, a, a novel coronavirus, novel meaning new. So we don't have a lot of information about how it's going to go going forward. Um, we did a little bit of, if you, you have to have two years pre-COVID of a positive cash flow and a good debt ratio. Um, but I think um, one of the reasons why we wanted to engage the lending community in a thoughtful way is the fact that at street level, they're going to be in a better position to assess the businesses in their community and determine, you know, the level of risk that they're experiencing. And um, frankly, we know that while we look at statewide and nationwide and, you know, countrywide, you know, at, at a global level, you know, which countries are faring better. And then nationally, we look at which states are faring better. And that's changed over time. You know, what states that were hit hard early, you know, tended to recover. But those that weren't hit hard early began to see a spike. Now it looks like Colorado is maybe climbing a little bit and we're watching it very carefully. But we also know that that's not equal across the state, that there are parts of the state that are going to maybe uh, see an increase in um, covid um, illnesses uh, and other parts of the states may not. And so I think those community-based lenders are the ones that are going to give us that better read on what's really happening in their community, uh, which is why we want to engage with them. You know, uh, we're in the process of developing and working closely with them to develop the kinds of products that they think would um, would be what they'd want to utilize, whether it be loan participation or credit enhancement or some other tool. We're still in the process of developing that and very, very closely working with them. Uh, Jeff Kraft from the Office of Economic Development and International Trade is having frequent conversations with, with many different types of lenders in, in the state, um, collecting feedback from them to make sure that we have the right set of products available. And, um, you know, the working document up on the Treasury website uh, is certainly, um, it is a working document. <laughs> we are modifying it meeting by meeting. I mentioned that we're going to have another Climber Board meeting immediately after this uh, session here. I'm going to have to dive right. off and be on it. And we're going to continue to talk about our loan products there. Uh, we're also working with small businesses and really listening carefully to them. You know, what kind of a loan package would it be appealing to you? What kind of terms do you think you're really going to need? Um, I think that feedback from both the businesses and the lenders is essential because we can dream up all kinds of things at the state level of what we think might work, you know, pitch it, start the program. If nobody bites, what have we accomplished? We, then we really have to have uh, loans and, and tools for the lenders 
and, and products that businesses really want to participate in uh, if we're going to have a successful launch of this. So Dave, we're going to go to break in just a minute. I'm going to ask you to stick around for just a few minutes after break because um, the thing that we heard the most uh, after the annual meeting last week was that um, people wanted to know how to to um, get involved, um, either they're from the lending perspective or whatever perspective. So I'm going to have you come back after the break um, and tell us a little bit about that. But before we go to break in just a few seconds, um, have you already started lending under this? We have not. So that launch is coming and we're anticipating at this point, first week of December. Okay. And there'll be plenty of uh, advance notice uh, that will be given. We'll utilize a lot of channels to let people know. We have a few kinks that we're working out. Hopefully we'll get those worked out and that time will be the hardline time that we'll be able to actually launch. We'll see. Okay. So right after the break, we'll come back and give you uh, some more details um, on how to be involved in that. Um, We'll see you in a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. This is Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You may also reach out via email to sarah.blackhurst at action22.org. Now, back to Making Action Happen. Welcome back. I'm uh, still joined here with my faithful compadre, Brian McCain. Um, we have uh, Colorado State Treasurer Dave Young on with us. He has been working very diligently on the climber. It's, we keep calling it the climber bill, but really it's the program now. Um, we had the Action 22 annual meeting last week, which was a huge success in large part to the presentation that Dave gave and the thing that we got asked to follow up with the most was more information about this because it's an interesting approach. Just really quick, Dave, before you start um, giving information on how everybody can go and learn more on your website and that sort of thing, will you tell us um, just in, if you can in you know a minute or two um, what the funding mechanism actually is? How are you coming up with the $250 Because this is kind of a cool approach. You bet. Uh, so it's, um, it's a public-private partnership here. 
and we have $50 million of state money uh, matched up with $200 million of, of private investment in a you know, one-to-four ratio or reverse, it's four-to-one if you put the private first. Um, and uh, we're fundraising uh, currently for that $200 million, and we're actually, uh, you know, coming to the General Assembly to ask for $50 million in the middle of an economic crisis <laughs> and a budget-cutting exercise of right. $3.3 billion wasn't really smart uh, a move. So we came up with a different strategy to actually sell tra- tax credits that will be redeemed uh, five to seven years in the future. And, um, you know, I'm not going to get into the details of that, but we're well into the process of securing uh, the services of a company or companies to help us um, broker uh, those tax credits, and we'll be ready to sell those and raise that money. So uh, we'll work on the fundraising side. We have some legal questions that we need to uh, get resolved um, pretty quickly, and we're moving that very fast. And once we do, we're going to begin raising that $200 million as well. And we've already done a lot of the legwork with those um, investors, and so we're, we're in pretty good shape. We just want to be sure we do everything right. We don't go Right. So quickly that we make mistakes and then get things tied up in a in some kind of legal bo- bottleneck. So, um, but that's it's coming from those two sources, and and it doesn't hit the general fund immediately right in the middle of this downturn when they're so worried about having to cut the budget. I was very sensitive to that because of my time on the joint budget committee. So that's smart. We've got a good that's model. Smart. Yeah. Good. All right. So. For any of our listeners who want to know more, uh, either about the model, how it is working, uh, when the launch is going to be, and all that sort of thing, where do they go? Well, great question. And, you know, we could have talked for hours about the details of this. And uh, instead, let me just point to the Treasury website, because this is a program that is operating out of the uh, Colorado State Treasury. The uh, URL is... uh, www.colorado.gov slash treasury. And when you get to the homepage of the treasury through that URL, uh, two things. One is if you scroll all the way to the bottom, on the left-hand side is the what's new section. And that's where we publicly notice the meetings of the Climber Small Business Loan Program Oversight Board. And... uh, so these, this oversight board has uh, been um, publicly established. The members were appointed by elected leaders, um, both in the Senate, the House, and the, and the governor. And then um, two positions were designated by, uh, by statute. But uh, people can go and look at that notice and know when those meetings occur, and the public is invited. So it's important to get to that homepage of the Treasury, scroll to, scroll to the bottom, and, and see when those meetings occur. And if they work in your schedule, you can certainly come in and participate as an observer. There is public comment always on um, in every meeting. And so if you actually want to uh, participate and, and give feedback to the board, that's more than welcome. While you're there at the bottom of the Treasury website, you might also go check to see if you have any, any unclaimed property to the great Colorado payback. I always had to do a plug on that. Um, and then if you go back up to the top, uh, there's a black bar with a list of different um, navigation buttons there. The About Us button has a drop-down menu, and if you go to Boards and Commissions, you'll see a, a link that pops over to the side that says Climber Loan Fund Program. And if you go into that, 
you'll actually discover all of the agendas, the minutes, and all the working documents that the Oversight Board is utilizing as, as we fashion this program. And uh, again, some caution, some of these are uh, works in progress. So what you see may not be a final document, but we want to be very transparent and open with everybody. And the reason we make it very public is because we do welcome that feedback. So if you're looking at a working document and you say, wait a minute, um, there's a piece of that I'm not sure is going to work right. We'd love to hear from people and have them join us on a, uh, an online um, Zoom call to provide that kind of feedback to the board so that we can awesome. make sure that this, uh, this program really is going to work for small businesses and our lenders. Great. So one more helpful? time. Yep. One more time. It is uh, colorado.gov forward slash mm-hmm. treasury. Yep. Um, we'll have you back uh, in a few weeks when you get ready to launch that program in December. Thank you so much, Dave. We appreciate you being on um, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate the, the time. You did a great, okay, great. job. Thank you. All right. I guess I will take over at this point. So next up, we have Mr. Jeff Shaw with PEDCO. Thank you for being with us here today, sir. And why don't you give a a quick brief explanation what PEDCO is and what you do there? Sure. So PEDCO, we're the local EDC for the commute for the, for Pueblo County. So um, we're a private economic development organization, a private nonprofit. Um, So our mission in life is the attraction um, expansion and, and retention of primary jobs in Pueblo County. So primary jobs being defined as a company that provides a service or a product and 51% is exported out of the community, kind of your traditional um, commerce side of economic development, primary jobs, creating additional jobs. So okay. we've been in business. We've been around since about ni- since 1981. Uh, one of the, one of the newer uh, one of the older economic development organizations, um, probably in the state, in this model. When we did, when we started, we formed the organization in 1981. It was a, a very unique and new model in economic development. And you, and since then, you've had much success in Pueblo. Um, you know, we, we've seen over the years, as long as I've been doing this, you know, it, it's every once a month at least I get a, a notice saying, "Hey, Pedco's inviting you over here to meet these people that are coming in." So we appreciate it. Um, and then, and then with that, how is PEDCO funded? So we're a membership organization. So we're set up as a 501c6. So we're set up like a chamber of commerce. Uh, so we're membership driven. Um, we are not taxpayer supported necessarily for operations. We do receive some funding from the city and the county for some marketing efforts for what we do, but our operational side staff and everything is taken care of by our membership. So we, when we started it, we had a membership um, it was really started, um, we're a result of the steel industry crash in the late 70s. Our unemployment with steel crashed. Um, our un- public's unemployment went up to, you know, for different numbers, but, you know, certainly north of 20% unemployment. Um, and so our founding father said, we've got to figure out a different way to do economic development. It was being run by the government at the time. And that's not a criticism, but we, they thought that maybe businesses want to take the businesses. And so... Our founding fathers uh, put their money where their mouth is and everybody ponied up $1,000 to get on planes and, and, and start knocking on doors to diversify our manufacturing base to bring additional uh, primary jobs to the community. So we're membership driven more than else. And my board is driven by my membership. Now, with COVID and everything happening, which we just talked about for the last 30 minutes, um, you know, it, Part of what I'm seeing is you have some of the larger areas in Colorado that 
you know, maybe we're going to see some deurbanization coming down. Um, and then also, it's not just economic development anymore, it's economic recovery. Um, I, I've noticed throughout some of the areas, some of the more rural cities, counties, towns have, haven't been hit as hard. But what do you think, recovery-wise, what should we be focusing on in southern Colorado and the rural Colorado with, you know, maintaining the business we have, possibly bringing more business in? Um, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so great question. So Pueblo is actually, um, we're weathering the COVID storm fairly well at this point. Um, strangely enough, um, the city, um, which measures their, their you know, the, the, the economy by sales tax, um, the sales tax in the city is actually up one and a half percent over last year. So we're actually, we haven't dipped. We've actually increased over the previous year. Of course, it was anticipated that it was increased. So we haven't been hit as hard. That's for a number of reasons. Um, certainly our manufacturing base, most the, you know, the lion's share of our manufacturers are considered essential, so we didn't have to have anybody shut down for the, to some degree. Um, certainly our restaurants and, and some of the service and retail have, 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 have been hit. And so when we went in, we, we got, when, when COVID happened, we got, we, we, we decided to take it as an opportunity to regroup and look at, you know, what should we do? Um, should we look at something different? Um, what's, what's the lay of the land going to look like after COVID? Everybody's got to try to figure out how to get through COVID. Um, and so one of the things we did to try to help companies get through COVID is, in, along with Petco in 1985, our citizens passed um, what we call our Hassan Sales Tax Ordinance, which is uh, an economic development incentive fund for primary jobs to bring in companies and expand companies for capital-based. Um, but we actually managed to allocate $5 million of that um, fund to go towards a COVID relief. So we had about 230, 200, just, just about 230 companies, not necessarily primary jobs. These were going to be more retail restaurants um, to have them look at what they needed to do to when, not to just to recover from COVID, but come out of COVID stronger than they went into it. So did they have to make changes to the facility? Do they have to um, separate out some of their staff? Do they have to bring in more PP? personal protection equipment. Um, so um, the city obviously funds, you know, the dollars go through the city. So we had, you know, about $3 million funded through that project, at least north of that, about three and a half million actually to help our local businesses. But we also took a look at it traditionally in economic development, develop, economic development in our world has always been um, retention, expansion and attraction, bring in companies, um, expand them and keep them here. That was kind of the three-legged stool of economic development. That's changed a little bit. Certainly, uh, attraction, retention, expansion are still very components of it, strong components of it. But the third phase of it, kind of that third stool now, is what we consider placemaking. So where do people want to live and what, how do they want to live? And so what we found so far through COVID is, you know, obviously the bigger metro areas have been hit really hard. Um, commercial office space is, you know, the, the price is dropping in the big markets because the commercial office space, people aren't going back to them, at least at this point. There's a number of, you know, housing market in big metro areas have gotten extremely expensive. Um, 
So people are starting to see, okay, what's the way of life that we want to experience? Do we want to have, you know, be more on top of each other with more of a, an expensive cost of living? Or should we look at more rural, Pueblo kind of fits in the middle of that. We're not really urban. We're not very rural. And we try to joke, we're not sure what we are at this point, depending on whose definition. But there are, has been a significant amount, and I don't want to speak for other, the other rural communities. Certainly, you're in a better position um, to do that. But um, there are a significant portion of households and businesses that are saying, let's get out of the big metro markets. Let's move um, into more rural areas where the quality of life is better, assuming they have the amenities that we need um, in order to operate their business. There's also, and it's kind of an unknown at this point, is you know, there's so many people working out of their houses, their homes right now. You know, my organization, we're, we're still trying to comply with the 50% requirements. And so we have half, this, half our staff working from home on a day and half coming in the next day. And so, um, and we know there's financial institutions up north that haven't gone back at all. Um, so everybody's trying to figure out what portion of the population is going to still, the companies have realized how much they can truly do without having to have an office space. So how much can they do at home? How many of their employees can say, look, as long as you have the, um, what you need to, to to, to, to work from home, um, you know, obviously uh, good housing and, and, and broadband and everything goes along with it. Um, so everybody's trying to determine how best to attract that. I think that's going to be a big opportunity. Um, and it already has been, at least it started happening with the housing market. Um, housing market is just so expensive in the, in the metro areas that people are starting to look for more affordable housing. So it's going to, it's going to, I think it, I, in a perverse way, I think COVID is going to create a situation, at least for Pueblo County, where we're going to probably come out of COVID, um, you know, two years out, um, probably stronger than we would had if COVID didn't happen. So we'll see more of a growth because of what happened with COVID than we would have without it, which is kind of a weird way to look at it. I guess maybe it's kind of Halloween and so we're looking at a perverse way of looking at things. But um, <laughs> we've talked to some site selectors. Um, we've, we spent a lot of time reanalyzing re re our clusters that we chase and, and, and brought in some, a, a, a major site selector to take a look at it. And that organization confirmed that, um, it just, it's, it's an opportunity for smaller communities to reinvent themselves again. We position it almost like Pueblo had to reinvent themselves in 1980 when the steel industry crashed. And we're now almost 40 years later, we have the opportunity to recreate ourselves again. Yeah. So. That being said, I, I know a lot of Action 22's focus right now is, is on the economic recovery and, and post-COVID recovery. Um, and, and traditionally in the past, you have, you know, you have PEDCO, you have different economic development per counties. And we're kind of looking at it in a different way that we're all in this together. Like, how can we work regionally? Um, and I know you're a, a Pueblo-focused organization, but what would be the benefit of, you know, bringing it down to the region versus just Pueblo? Like, how can we move forward for this recovery to maybe, you know, the, the surrounding counties need some help, too, and kind of get together for that? Do you think that's a good way to start to approach this? Yeah, regional approach to economic development has always been strong, um, at least for the last five or six years. It's been a hot topic. So around the country, you've seen some regional economic development efforts um, formalized. And so... I should say more than five years, 10 years or so, um, where, you know, groups like ours, Petco, and, and certainly other surrounding areas have their own economic development groups, um, where examples being is, and these really have happened in other states, it's happened in Denver to some degree that you have a, a kind of a regional economic development group. The idea is that everybody's trying to work together and not hurt each other. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when we look at a project and if a company's looking at Pueblo or a company's looking or a, a site selector is looking at Pueblo, they're looking at a lot of, you know, a lot of factors. One of them is going to be the labor. The labor shed for us is regional. It's not Pueblo County. Um, you know, our you know, and that includes our northern friends up in Carl Springs. And so when they're going to look at our labor pool, so, you know, where they're going to pull employees from is regional without a doubt. And so especially, you know, where you can get, you know, for the most part everywhere and, you know, in, in kind of our surrounding area within an hour, hour and a half, people are traveling. And so there's large manufacturers that are pulling workforce that have workforce coming up from the south or coming from the east and I'm and, and I'm hopeful that um, there'll be projects surfacing on in you know out east as well as south that there'll be workforce be able to go that um, go both directions just similar like right now there's a tremendous amount of workforce that goes north and south on I-25 on a, on a regular basis you line up on you go out at 5 30 or 6 in the morning you're going to see traffic going both sides because workforce really can migrate and it's going to migrate. So a regional approach is strong. Regional has taken a little bit of a hit lately um, just because of COVID. So everybody's trying to figure out how they're going to work with that. But how we leverage all of our strengths um, and well as solve some of the weaknesses that a project. So you can go after bigger projects with a regional approach than you can by just going it alone. And with that, um, I know there's a ballot measure in Pueblo that's coming up, 2A, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, what should the voters know about that? So 2A is our, we call our house and sales tax fund. So it's run, being run by a group called Publins for Jobs. So after nine, when we formed in 1981, four years later, um, the citizens got together in, in Pueblo and approved what we call a house and sales tax ordinance. So a half cent of everything purchased that, with the exception of exempt items like food goes into an incentive fund um, to allow us in, to, to incentivize companies either inside the city of Pueblo or the airport industrial park um, for, um, capital purposes. So example being a company can come in, um, and when we did it, it was the first of its, it was one of the first of its kind in the country. Not many people had it. Now a lot of people have similar type funds. States have their own funds. Um, but our fund actually is, is larger than, um, a lot of states funds. And so what they can do is we can bring in a company and let me pick on, you know, a big company such as, uh, Evraz, who we just, finished our incentive package and, and, and moving forward. So Evraz is looking to build a new long rail milk um, steel mill. You know, they're going to invest somewhere between 500 and 600 million dollars in a project. And so in order to help them with the capital that's required to do it, um, we were able to allocate $15 million out of the Hassan sales tax fund. So a company guarantees a certain amount of employees. Um, we can provide a, a, a number of cap, you know, some capital to them. Um, it's not for operational support. It's strictly going to be for um, capital. And so, um, you know, the payback over, you know, like an Evraz where we invest $15 million into it, Evraz's impact after expansion is going to be about $500 million per year. And so it's a small amount to invest in order to maintain a thousand jobs and then and, and have a positive economic driver of about $500 million per year. Um, kind of a no-brainer. So it was a very novel approach in 1985. The citizens have to vote on it every five years. Um, this is an election year, like everything else on the ballot, right? So um, it just fell what it was. And so it's known as Pueblo Wins for Jobs. Um, 2A is the, uh, the ballot, like you mentioned, and that's the approval of the house and sales tax funds. Typically, the voters have approved it about 60 to 40 percent, as long as we don't change the language on it. 
And so the language um, that is being used this year is the exact same language that's been approved in previous years. It hasn't been modified at all. It's not a new tax increase. It's not an increase. Um, it just allows us to continue to do it. One of the things that allows us to do is not only incentivize companies, what makes us unique though, is that we can help, we can create our own inventory for buildings and land, um, which is, you know, it's a luxury um, for us because in you know, pre-COVID companies were looking for workforce and they're looking for av available facilities. Both of them are hard to come by, um, certainly on the front range and without if not the entire country. So um, available facilities is very tough to come by. And for the most part, workforce is the key to any project right now. Any, you have the workforce, a company's going to come to you. You don't have the workforce, you're not going to have the company. Right. Well, real fast, we're going to wrap up, but where can we find more information about you? What's what page? Yeah, so you can go to Publins for Jobs, has some information on that, but I would direct you um, the our website, um, pedcode org and that's pedco.org um, will direct you to it has economic impact of what we've done it gives you an economic impact of all of our uh, companies that we've brought in and there's also a link on the top that says learn more about the Hassan sales tax and how it helps bubbles job growth all right sir well thanks for coming on thank you Jeff we appreciate you coming on so um, before we take off um, to wrap up there we wanted to just really quickly um, Thank everybody for being a part of, and, and Jeff was there, and Dave was there for our annual meeting um, this last week. Uh, but everything we heard there and everything that we heard today really has us a little bit more enthusiastic about the outlook for um, the entire region. So we appreciate you, Jeff, coming on. So um, if you want to see anything about the annual meeting, you can go to um, Action 22 Southern Colorado's Facebook page and watch uh, the live stream there um, next week. I'm really excited about the show next week. So one of my very favorite things to do when I, I greet somebody or I see somebody is I ask them, what good stories do you have for me? And Brian always has the best stories. So sort of as our, our Halloween uh, episode next week, he has some really great stories from around the region, sort of spooky, but true. Um, it's going to be such a great, it's going to be such a great show. We're really, really looking forward to it. Um, so tune in next week. Um, if you have any questions for either Jeff or Dave Young, you can, of course, always email us at action22, uh, admin at action22.org. And we will um, be happy to answer any of those questions. Um, we are excited. This has been another episode of making action happen, all the great stuff, interesting stuff um, that's going on without in uh, Southern Colorado on the economic front, on during this election year, um, post-COVID recovery. We're going to bring a lot more to you um, on that side of it. We appreciate you so much for joining us again. Uh, if, you, um, if you have any questions, email us. This has been uh, at Making Action Happen with Voice America. You can always go on voiceamerica.com and listen or tune in to any of the great shows that are on there. Thanks again for joining us. We will see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your host, Sarah Blackhurst, for another edition of the show next Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.